DJs at WCRH, and one of the things that I used to really enjoy doing was uh, listening through the headphones to a group called uh, by Derek Johnson called the Regeneration, and that took me back. Isaiah 61 is where we are. A passage that we're going to look at this morning exemplifies a number of important aspects about the prophetic message. First of all, it affirms that God reveals himself to mankind with a message of hope and reconciliation. We need that message of hope and reconciliation. God also provides details of what he will do in the future. We need to know that because today is not like yesterday and tomorrow will not be like today and we need to know where in the world it is that we're going. <coughs> Thirdly, God reveals himself to mankind with a message of judgment for their continued rejection of him. That too is a message that we need to hear today because, well, we seem to be rejecting God pretty regularly and frequently in modern society, and there is a price to be paid for that. Fourthly, not everything which God reveals happens in the same moment. God works through time, and in doing so, he grants opportunity for repentance. So listen, please, as I reread just a little bit of the first part of Isaiah 61 here. It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The agency of the Holy Spirit in calling and sending prophets in the Old Testament and even pastors in the New Testament is repeatedly revealed. For example, in Numbers chapter 11, beginning at verse 17, we read the account of God taking His Spirit and placing His Spirit upon the 70 elders of Israel. In the period of the judges, there's a phrase that constantly repeats itself as God's people turned from God and God sent His judge, His messenger to bring them back to himself, we see the phrase, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, whichever judge it happened to be. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And when that happened, then that individual was enabled to do the work that God called them to do. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, we see that same kind of idea occurring when God sets Saul out for himself. He goes to Samuel, and Samuel's giving instructions to Saul, Samuel being God's prophet, and he says, the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and you will prophesy, and you will be turned into another man. Saul was a man anointed by the Spirit of the Lord to do the job of being king, the job that God called him to do. 
In Ezekiel chapter 11, Ezekiel relates his own experience. He says, Then the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me and said to me, Speak, thus says the Lord. Ezekiel was empowered by the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts chapter 13, as God was moving the church out, moving the message of the gospel out into the world, it had come time now for the gospel to go to the Gentiles directly. And in chapter 13 of Acts verse 2, it says, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And you know the rest of the story. Saul, we know him better as Paul, became probably the greatest missionary that the church has ever seen in its 2,000 plus years of existence. And Barnabas and all those who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ because of them through all the ages right down to today, we have been called and empowered by God's Spirit to do the work that he's called us to do. So, we should not be surprised then that the Holy Spirit is intimately involved in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. Just as the Holy Spirit was intimately involved in creation, in Genesis chapter 1, it talks about the Spirit of God moving upon the face of the deep. He's currently involved in the world today. John chapter 16 verse 8 says that he convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He's currently involved in your life today if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 14, he is given to us as a pledge, as a promise of those good things yet to come. And he's going to be involved in the new heavens and the new earth. In Revelation chapter 21, it talks about his involvement there in bringing about that new creation and how he will have a ministry there in the eternal state. And so he is intimately involved with Jesus as he comes into this world, as he takes on the form of a man, and brings the message of truth and life and salvation. Jesus, although he is fully God, was in his humanity fully dependent upon the Holy Spirit for the fulfillment of the work and the sacrifice that God the Father had called him to do. Don't ask me to explain all of that, but clearly that's what the scriptures present. Jesus was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness. Jesus was led by the Spirit to read this passage in Isaiah. Jesus, through the power and working of the Holy Spirit, performed the great miracles that authenticated His message and got the attention of those to whom He was sent. It's in the power of the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, that Jesus Christ presented His blood to the Father as the perfect sacrifice for sin. And it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. So when we come now to the very beginning of His earthly ministry, 
God has already outlined it 740 some years before it takes place in Isaiah chapter 61. By the way, this chapter encompasses 3,000 plus years of history. You say, you mean in all that one chapter, just 11 verses, there's 3,000 plus years of history? Yep. Let's take a look. Chapter 61, verse 1, which I've already read, going over to chapter 2, and the first little bit of that, part A, we'll divide verse uh, 2 up into three parts, A, B, and C. All of that encompasses the earthly ministry of Jesus. It says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. You know, that was, that was very literally, visibly, audibly confirmed at the baptism of Jesus as recorded in Matthew chapter 3. There was Jesus coming to John. John had been preaching a message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus shows up and John says, <laughs> you don't have, I can't baptize you. I have need to be baptized by you and, and you're coming to me? And Jesus said, let it be so now because we need to fulfill all righteousness. We need to do the right thing here. And so John baptized him, which for Jesus was not any admission of sin or guilt. It was not any, any outward sign of repentance it was the sign of being set apart for ministry because the voice of God the Father spoke audibly from heaven. The Spirit of God, taking on the form of a dove, appeared and settled and rested upon Jesus, the Son of God, there in the Jordan River. God the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You see there a fulfillment of this portion of Isaiah chapter 61. Visibly, audibly, right there in front of the crowd, Jesus was designated, set apart, because He was the Messiah. That didn't make Him the Messiah. He already was. That set Him apart in the eyes of all those who were there that day, they knew without a doubt that the Spirit of the Lord was upon this man. This had never be ha happened before in the history of Israel. It has never happened since. This is unique. Verse 2, the second part, says to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. That hasn't happened yet. Now Isaiah revealed this about 740 years before Christ. We're roughly 2,000 and some odd years after Christ. So 2,700 years has passed between Isaiah's proclamation and we still haven't gotten to the day of vengeance of our God. But Jesus talked about it. He let folks know that this day of vengeance was coming. 
In, for example, Matthew chapter 20, chapters 24 and 5, let me just briefly summarize it. You won't need to turn there. You can read that this afternoon. But Jesus talks about, in Matthew 24 and 5, the appearance of himself. And he talks about the removal of the wicked. We, we look at that, and uh, we sometimes think, well, uh, you know, that's a picture of the rapture. Two are grinding at the mill, one's taken, one's left. Uh-uh. Nope. He says it's going to be like it was in the days of Noah. Now, who was taken out of this world in the days of Noah? Was it the wicked or the righteous that were taken out? It was the wicked, wasn't it? God destroyed the wicked and the righteous, Noah, his sons, their wives, they remained on the earth. They stayed put, as it were, and they repopulated the earth. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. The wicked will be removed. This is not the rapture, beloved. This is not the rapture. This is God's plan and purpose for the nation of Israel and what the world will be like at that time. And the wicked will be removed. In chapter 24, verse 45, continuing all the way through the end of chapter 25, we have a judgment and a distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous. There's some parables there. There's good and evil servants. The, the, the bad one, you know, his master goes away, and so he begins to beat the servants that are under him, and he takes advantage of them, and he doesn't pay attention to the stewardship that's been given him. And the righteous steward doesn't do that. There's the parable of the virgins. Five were wise and five were foolish. And the wise ones prepared and they looked ahead and they waited with anticipation and belief, realizing that their bridegroom could come at any moment. But the foolish ones, they just went about their own thing and did their own pleasures and, and they didn't pay attention to the trust that had been given to them. And so when the bridegroom came, they tried to scramble around at the last minute and be prepared and when they got there and they banged on the door, it was too late. They were not admitted because they weren't prepared. All the way through the end of chapter 25, it talks about the judgment of all the nations. And the result is that each, the righteous and the unrighteous, will receive a reward. The unrighteous will be cast out into everlasting fire. The righteous, those who believed God, those who trusted Him, those who took Him at His word, those who acted by faith according to what God had revealed to them, they will go into the kingdom and repopulate the earth. It's not their works that saved them. It's their response whether they accepted or rejected the Messiah. Beginning in chapter 61, verse 3, actually verse 2 in the C part of it, it says, To comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, 
the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the foreigner shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. Oh, beloved, this is a picture of the millennium. This is the millennium from here to the end of this chapter. When God exalts His people and the world is brought to peace and reconciliation and the world realizes the blessing that Israel is and they support Israel and encourage Israel and minister to Israel. Why? Because Israel is God's representative on the earth. They're a kingdom of priests that represent God to all those who are gathered around. And it's a blessing. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 11. You can read about that. He says, you know, God's going to graft those branches back into the olive tree that he broke off because of unbelief. He's going to put them right back in. God's plan is not the way we figure it out, is it? it it's, it's not how you and I would do things. I mean, for you and me, if somebody hurts us or offends us or says something nasty about us or does something to us, we write them off, don't we? We just whack, off they go. And we are not willing to deal with them again. Good riddance to bad rubbish, right? Aren't you glad God doesn't do that to you and me? We are bad rubbish. <laughs> we are sinners. I know we don't look like it here today, do we? Well, here we are. We're all sitting here. We're all nicely dressed. We've had our showers. You know, we look good. We smell good. We, we behave well. But you know what? At the very core, we are sinners. Have you had a bad thought this morning? Sure. We'd be lying if we didn't say that we were guilty. We're, we're sinners. And God could have just simply cut us off and said, good riddance to bad rubbish. But he didn't. He sent a Savior. He told us about it in the Old Testament. We've been reading it. We've been seeing it in Isaiah. Page after page after page after page. Because God wants us as wayward, sinful, rebellious people to be reconciled to Him. That's mercy. That's grace. That's love. He would have been absolutely right to have dropped Adam and Eve in the pit of hell as soon as they ate and rebelled against Him and wiped His hands of the whole mess. Righteousness holiness, truth, all would have been satisfied. But in His mercy, in the face of mankind's rebellion, God desires to show His grace, His mercy, His forgiveness, 
his patience, his willingness to receive us to himself. Let's take a look at Luke chapter 4. Terry mentioned that this morning, that this is the passage that Jesus read at the beginning of his earthly ministry. He's absolutely right. Jesus is uh, probably about eight to ten months along in his earthly ministry, if you compare all the accounts of the Gospels. He's already been baptized, he's already been down to Jerusalem, and he's already performed his first miracle, and he's been to Capernaum, and and now he shows up in his hometown. Well, not quite his hometown. That was Bethlehem. Everybody thought Nazareth was his hometown, but he was actually born in Bethlehem. But he spent his growing up years, for the most part, in Nazareth. And so he gets there, and he comes to the synagogue. Verse 16, so he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was. Now we can preach a sermon on that. Jesus, the Son of God, made the worship of God in the synagogue a regular part of his life. He didn't miss. He was there. He worshipped God. Do you think regular Worship is important. Apparently Jesus did. So maybe that ought to be a clue to us. And they brought to him, let's see, i got to find my spot. And when he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then He closed the book, gave it back to the attendants, and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on Him. Now, it's tempting to think that Jesus was, was just being given the opportunity to read and that somebody else was going to expound on what he read. I don't think so. I think they expected Jesus to bring the message that way. And they did things a little bit differently in the synagogue. When the scripture was read, everybody stood. It was a recognition of the importance and the value of the scriptures. It was a way that the whole community could honor God. But then when it was time to teach, the teacher would usually sit. How many times do we read in the pages of Scripture that Jesus sat down and taught the multitudes? Many times. And here, Jesus finishes reading, and he sits down, and everybody's looking at him because they're expecting him now to teach. They're expecting him to talk about this passage of Scripture, which he just read. And they were probably expecting to hear what they had heard from the rabbis so many times before. Oh, God is going to bring a Messiah, and He's going to deliver us, and He's going to wreak vengeance on our enemies, and He's going to make us great. 
That was the message, I think, that they expected to hear. What was the message they got? Verse 20, or excuse me, verse 21. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That must have been in their ears like an atom bomb going off. Because they had heard for generations, this is the Messiah. Who's Jesus claiming to be? <laughs> the Messiah. God in the flesh. The Redeemer of Israel. And if their eyes were fixed on him before, now their eyes and their ears are more open than they have ever been. Verse 22, all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Can't you see him in the pews? Can't you hear them? All this mumbling and rumbling about there. <coughs> so he says to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal thyself. Whatever we've heard done in Capernaum, do here also in your country. Hey, we've heard about those miracles out there. We've heard about that teaching. We, we, we've heard about those things. How about you do some of that stuff right here for us? Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do here also in your own country. Then he said, now by the way, he's reading their thoughts. They haven't, they haven't vocalized these things, okay? How would you like me to be able to read your thoughts on something? Yeah, me too. I, I, I'm not interested at all. But Jesus was. And he knew what they were thinking. Do you think they were feeling comfortable at this moment? Not at all. He says, Assuredly, assuredly I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent, except to Zarephath in the region of Zion, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Jesus is recalling to their minds two great prophets who were flatly rejected by God's people. Elijah and Elisha. God sent both of those men with messages to the people of Israel and they rejected them and God used both of those men to be a blessing to people outside of Israel. In other words, 
to those wicked, hated, God-forsaken Gentiles. And that was an offense. That was an offense. You know, we read earlier in Isaiah about Jesus and his, the character of his ministry. It says in rather cryptic language, a bruised reed he shall not break and smoking flax he shall not quench. And you think, what in the world is that all about? And it's describing the character of Jesus' ministry and how he would react to people. Think about how Jesus reacted to people during his earthly ministry. To the woman who was caught in adultery, did he grab up a stone and start winging it at her and hitting her in the head with it? No. He was extremely gracious to her. To the woman who had such little esteem of herself, was so embarrassed because of her illness, her, her internal bleeding, that, that she thought with her, boy, if I can just... If I can just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. How did Jesus treat her? With graciousness, with kindness. There were the multitudes out on the hillside, and Jesus says, I have compassion on them, because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And so he taught them, and he fed them. A bruised reed, he didn't just snap it off and say, well, that's worthless. No, he brought it together. He tried to bind it up. He tried to heal it. Smoking flax where there was just the almost, it seemed like hardly any faith in God was left. Jesus fanned that tiny little smoldering spark into a flame. But how did he deal with the religious crowd? With the scribes, the experts in the law, the Pharisees, the holy ones, the Sadducees, the priests and the, the big shots in the religious community. How did he deal with them? They came to him trying to entrap him, trying to embarrass him, trying to make accusations. They came all puffed up in their great flowing robes with the long prayer tassels on the ends and, and they did all their bowing and they did all their reciting and they, they stood on the street corners and they loved to be seen by men. How did Jesus deal with the religious crowd? He nailed them to the wall. He gave no mercy. He extended no grace. He repeatedly called them snakes, a brood of vipers, whitewashed sepulchers, he couldn't stand their religious hypocrisy. That's what happens when the unholy comes into the presence of the holy. One of two things. Either we fall on our faces before a holy, almighty God, or we revert to spiritual pride and we puff ourselves up and we fall under the condemnation of Almighty God. Notice what happens here in Nazareth. 
So all in the synagogue, verse 28, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built that they might throw him down over the cliff. Why? Because he came to heal the brokenhearted, to preach the good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He came to save those who were willing to admit their spiritual blindness, their ignorance, their poverty. He came to save those who in absolute humility were to cast themselves upon him and say, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But that day in Nazareth, pride filled the hearts of the people. And no one who walks with a proud heart will be saved. Your pride's going to get in your way. It's going to stand between you and your Savior forever. What was it that brought about Satan's original rebellion against God? It was pride. I'm going to do it my way. I will not submit to anyone or anything. It is my life. The theme of the unbeliever is that old song, I did it my way. You can do that. You can do that. God has created us as responsible moral agents and we can make decisions. And if you want to continue in pride, you certainly can. And I guarantee you, not because I said it, but because the Word of God says it, the Word of God teaches it, you will end up in the lake of fire forever and ever. There's no escape. But if we humble ourselves and come to the Lord on His terms, He will not cast us out. He will receive us to Himself. You say, Pastor, you, you don't know some of the things I've done. You don't know some of the things I've said. You don't know some of the things I've been involved with. No, I don't. But Jesus already does. And he's already extended mercy and grace to you. There's nothing that you have done that is unforgivable except continue in your pride. That's it. Very simple. But when Jesus walked into the synagogue that day and proclaimed the year of God's favor to the people who were there, 
They didn't want to humble themselves, and so they tried to kill him. Think about our world for a moment. Don't we see that happening now? Is it popular to preach a gospel of repentance? Is it popular to preach a gospel of submission to Jesus Christ? No, it's not popular. And it's becoming less popular. And is not the world shouting with an ever-increasingly loud and prideful voice that we will do things our way? Yeah, that's the world in which we live, beloved. It's becoming increasingly black and white. We're living in a world that has set itself against God and that will not submit to God. That's the culture. That's the society. That's in the air that we breathe. But beloved, the invitation of Jesus Christ extended through Isaiah, extended by himself to the people there in the synagogue at Nazareth, extended through God's word to you and me today is still the same. If you will call upon the name of Jesus Christ, confessing your sin, humbly presenting yourself to him, he will, not might, but will save your soul. That's the greatest news that we could ever have. Maybe some of you are here this morning and you've heard that kind of a message before, but you know what? Pride is still there. And you just aren't willing to admit you need to save. Oh, beloved. The dangerous thing about pride is that the more you give into it, the stronger it gets until there's a point where you can't change and you won't change and pride will be your death. If you sense anything of the Spirit of God speaking to your heart and drawing you to this Word, drawing you to the Lord Jesus Christ, do not harden your hearts, but open your heart to Him and be saved. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, you have made such amazing provision for the salvation of mankind. And your word says that whoever comes to him, you will in no wise cast out. And the invitation is open, whosoever will may come. Even in Ezekiel's day, Father, your message was, why should you die, O Israel? Turn to me. You take no delight in the death of the wicked. But you do delight, Father, in forgiving and giving new lives to those who have been so horribly marred and damaged by sin. Father, I pray if there's someone here today who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, that they will not leave this place without humbling their hearts before you, admitting their sin, and receiving the gift of eternal life. Father, 
all of us who are believers here today would rejoice with them. We would be ecstatic that someone has turned to Christ for salvation. Lord, speak to our hearts. We ask it in your precious name. Amen.